the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. With every celebration of a new year, we become acutely aware as we get older and older of the passing of time and really how quickly it passes. For many, this has never been more true this past week. As we said goodbye to a year that was, for many, the epitome of difficult days, hoping for a brighter future, hoping for a COVID-free 2021. And so, year after year, with the passing of time and the growing of our own wisdom, we learn to measure our days. We become more focused on living life to the fullest. And that's why we see in the world around us, carpe diem, or seize the day, becomes the motto and mandate of life. This Latin phrase, carpe diem, emphasizes the enjoyment and full use of the here and now with little regard to the future. You only live once, we would say today. Seize the moment. Live life to the fullest. This makes total sense to those who have no anticipation for an eternity, an eternity that is greater than anything we could experience today. Because carpe diem, if there's nothing in the great beyond, then naturally you have to live life to the fullest today because for them there is nothing in the future. There is no eternity. It is just the end or darkness. So the world says make every day count. Fulfill your every desire. Forget about tomorrow. Definitely forget about the far-off future and use everything you have for today. We as Christians, however, we know better. We know that we are not of this world. Seize the day doesn't apply to us because we are not of this day. This is not our life. There is something better. We are eternal people. We are people of eternity. To follow the world's pursuit of carpe diem would be for us like focusing on enjoying the boarding process of a flight and not planning or enjoying the actual vacation. No, friends, we as Christians, we do not live for today. Carpe diem is not for us. Rather, we live today in light of eternity. We know that we are just passing through. We know that this is just a drop in the bucket in terms of time. For eternity is eternity. It does not end, and it is better. We do not carpe diem. For us, it is carpe futurum. Seize the future. Live today, yes, but live today for the future. But what does that mean? It sounds nice. It sounds catchy, but this can often prove difficult. But this is where Paul comes to the rescue. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. As Paul instructs us how and why we are to live not for today, but for the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verses 29 through 31. We find ourselves in a passage where Paul continues to talk about marriage and singleness. But this particular passage, though it does apply in the context, is so practical and so applicable to every stage of life. Verses 29 through 31, 1 Corinthians 7. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. At first glance, I understand that this passage can be confusing. What in the world does he mean that we are to weep as though we did not weep? For those of us who are married, to live as if we are not married, surely that doesn't mean what it sounds like. Well, as we unpack these verses, we'll see that this is very deep and helpful instruction on how to live in light of eternity. And this morning, our outline is two perspectives for living in light of eternity. This morning, very simply, I will give you two perspectives for living in light of eternity. In other words, two perspectives you must have, and you must have them both, for living the way you are saved to live. This is not something that we can just choose to do or not to do as Christians. We can either maximize our pleasures of this world, or we can live for eternity. No, no, if you want to honor God, if you want to live the way you are saved for, then you will live in light of eternity. To be perfectly honest with you, I trust that this passage will be especially helpful and convicting for us. But the first thing, the first perspective we need to have for living in light of eternity is your recognition of the times, your recognition of the times. I find this in the brief phrase in the beginning of verse 29 as well as in the end of verse 31. It's kind of like a bookends. He starts by saying, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. And then we jump ahead to the end of verse 31, for the form of this world is passing away. And we'll talk more about that second point Uh, that second phrase in our second point. But they work together. What Paul first tells us is that time has been literally pulled together, drawn together so that the quantity is smaller, or in this case, because we're talking about time, shorter. It is compressed so that all that is left is a short amount of time. And what has been shortened is not our lives, but the world as we know it, and here's where we connect to uh, the end of the passage for the form of this world, is passing away. If you were to look at God's timeline, and much of it we don't know or understand, but timeline for man from creation, which we have told for us in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the end times, which we have scattered throughout the Scriptures, but especially in Revelation we see that God's timeline for man was divided or is divided into sections, very large sections, sections that span uh, multiple generations. And we are in the last section, the final age. 
this culminates with the end times, the second coming of Christ and Armageddon and the tribulation and all of those things. But we are in the final phase of God's plan for man. After the phase that we are in, after the age that we are in, is eternity. There is nothing else in this world as we know it. Now, as we saw a couple weeks ago on our Christmas service, this particular age or this particular section of the timeline of man as created by God began with Jesus' birth. And so we know what had been anticipated and been longed for and been waited for for so many years by the people of God has been inaugurated when Jesus came to be born as a baby, which we celebrated on Christmas Day. Now, we don't know when the end of this section will be because we are not told exactly when Christ will return, but we know that that end the reality of Christ coming again has become more concrete, more realistic, because He has come the first time at His earthly birth. The word time that Paul is using here uh, refers to a fixed or a definite period of time. Now again, we don't know how long this period of time is, but we do know that God has already decided we are interested in knowing just generally if, if God could just tell us the, the year that He will return. But I tell you that God has already decided upon the very second that He will return, and you can be assured of that. Now, we don't know when He will come, and He makes it very clear that He does not want us to know that He will come like a thief in the night. But speaking of this age that we are in, and we will continue to live in until He comes again, there are a few things that define this age. And as I mentioned just three of them, I think you will understand that that, uh, these things really resonate with us. These seem like norms for us because they are involved in all of Christianity, but you've got to understand that these three things that define this age are unique to this time frame in which we were born and lived. The first is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Not the existence of the Holy Spirit. He has existed as God, very God from eternity past. But the giving of the Holy Spirit in every follower of the Lord is unique to this time period. Yes, the Holy Spirit did work, and there are those individuals who are guided and had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times, but it was not a universal indwelling as it is today. The second thing that defines this age is the church. We call this actually the church age because of the existence of the church. Before the church, it was Israel. The nation of Israel were God's people. Now it is the church. Not the church building, but the church as the body of Christ. And so it's not just the church as our second defining aspect of this age, but the church as well as the church's mission to evangelize the world, which is part and parcel of who and what we are as the church. The third defining aspect of this age is the call for all of mankind, all of mankind, to make a decision for Christ. Obviously, this could not happen prior to the fulfillment of the gospel in Christ's birth, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so we are living in very particular times. And when you look at these three defining aspects of this age, especially the church and the call to evangelize and the call of all of mankind to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, you can see 
how this is very defining and emblematic of the final days. This is it. It's time to be saved. It's time to go out there and get people saved because the end of all things is coming. Now, Paul says that this time has been shortened. And it's important to understand that the shortening of this time is by God's grace. This is in no way a punishment. It is God's grace. We know in part this is because as believers we long for eternity to begin. We long to be with Him. But understand at the end of this age, there is no more sin. There is no more death. And so you could almost see in contrast to the ways of the world and where there is sin and death, but there are also worldly pleasures, the degree to which you long for eternity is for you as a Christian a good gauge of whether or not you love the world in a sinful way. Do you truly see the shortening of this time, these days, as the grace of God, an undeserved gift? Do you long for Him to come, or are you so enmeshed with the pleasures of this world that you kind of want Him to come, but you hope that He delays? Understand that as we look at the context, the word time that Paul uses refers not only to a specific period of time, but also a specific quality of that time period. So we understand that Paul's main concern is not that we look at our watches or our calendars or try to predict when Christ will return to earth or even that we know when Christ will come again. His concern, God's concern, is how we view our time here on earth, our perspective in light of eternity. How do we live? What do we prioritize? How do we view the things that this world has to offer? In other words... When Paul says the time has been shortened, his goal is not to get us to look at our watches or calendars to be frantic that Christ is going to come tomorrow or tonight, but to change how we view our lives, to change our perspective. Stop living for today. Use today to live for eternity. Specifically, we are to have a radically different view than the world around us. We are to have a radically different view than we had before we were saved. We are to have a biblical worldview. In other words, everything we see in the world and even how we look at things like science and society and culture and justice and movements and politics, everything in the world, our own spouses, our own emotions, our own physical growth and intellectual growth, All is a worldview, and it must be gauged and viewed through the lens of Scripture. That's a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview revolves around knowing what in the world is right and what is not. What pursuits and priorities are correct and what are, for the Christian and non-Christian, wrong. You know, when we look at the original context we actually have it a lot easier than the Corinthians. Their generation are being told that they are now in uh, an age that was inaugurated by an event, the birth of Christ, that for many of them happened in their lifetime. Meaning that some of them were born and raised prior to this church age and then lived and died in 
the church age. And think about that. These people that Paul is writing to originally, they could not have been raised in Christian homes because there was no such thing as a Christian. They were the first ones. All of us today, we were born well after this age began. We were born, raised, live, and will die in the church age. For us, since we've been born, long before we were born, the Bible is complete. The church is established. We don't have to try to change our perspective and our mindset to an age that didn't exist when we were teenagers. We just need to deal with our own minds and not have to deal with ages and timelines. Our battle is with changing our mindset from the worldly or from before we were saved and then the continuing battle as the trends and the the pressures of the world influence us in so many different ways. And as we will see in a moment, these pressures are not just our ways of thinking, our sin, but even how we view things like possessions. And what Paul is reminding us is to live with an eternal perspective to not be controlled or dominated by the temporal or the things of the world. You don't go on vacation uh, for a couple weeks in Europe and spend a week doing real estate shopping to buy a house that you plan to live in there for years because your flight is in seven days. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to be so enmeshed in it. Learn a few phrases. Sure, a lot of us like to do that. But to take a three-year course on the language just so you can communicate for your two-week vacation where you're going to be going to restaurants and places where everyone speaks English, it doesn't make sense. But that's sometimes what we do here on earth. We get so involved knowing that our time here is temporary. And so we need to live as we are in reality, which is people of eternity. So, let me just put it very simply. To live with an eternal perspective means to not be controlled or dominated by the temporal, by the things of the world. And that's key. Because we will see that Paul tells us that we must use these things, but we cannot be controlled by them. We cannot be dominated by them. Not even just the things in our lives, but even the things we desire. To put it another way, We are not to be controlled or dominated by the things that dictate the existence of everyone else in the world that is outside of the church. And that's where, frankly, it becomes difficult because most of the people we work with, even some of our family members who aren't saved, they live in a completely different world. Their priorities are completely different. Their pursuits, their goals are totally different, and that affects us. Because we live in their homes. We, we see how they live. They talk to us. They, they have goals for us as their children of what we should pursue or how we should raise our kids. And it can become very difficult. But we must understand that distinction. They live for the here and now. We live for the future. And so like a, like a parent who tells his child that he can't have candy all day, we get it. Not as God does, but we get it. They don't. 
they don't understand. They don't understand the, the ruining of their appetite. They don't understand health. They don't understand the sugar crash. But we get it. We know better. So we need to stop living like the, 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 the candy-eating children of the world who we can't judge them. They don't know any better. They don't have the Lord. That's all they can live for. That's the best they can do. But we know better, so we need to stop living like that, especially because we know that we have, are living in an inaugurated age and the end is on its way. Now, the primary and foundational way to do this is to recognize the reality of the time that we are living in. But Paul goes on to give us specifics of what that looks like to live as aliens to live in light of the future and eternity. I think you understand when I say live for the future, I don't mean like save up for retirement or for the next holiday. We're talking about after death, after rapture, the future being the eternal future. And so in looking at two perspectives for living in light of eternity, we must recognize the times, but secondly, your relationship with the temporal your relationship with the things of the world, the temporal, the things that will pass away, the things that will not be in eternity. Look at the second part of verse 29 and to the end of our section, which is verse 31. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. And what we see here is that there are five specific areas or, or aspects of the world, relationships we have in the world or with the world that Paul addresses in the larger con- uh, context of our relationship with the temporal uh, or with the world and not eternity. And I want to break down all five of these. Uh, two of them we're going to look at together because they go under the same category. Um, but all of these are important and they all really say the same thing. And so there's five specific areas. It is multifactorial, if you will. The first he talks about is the spouse your relationship with your spouse. He says those who are married should act, be as if they were unmarried. Now let's begin by stating the obvious because whenever we look at a passage like this that on the surface seems to lead us in a certain direction, you understand that we need to look at the context not only of this verse but of the entirety of Scripture. So let's begin again by stating the obvious. This is not a call to neglect your biblical roles as husband and wife for the sake of eternity or for the sake of ministry. What he is saying here does not allow you to love your spouse any less, be any less committed, or stop trying to excel still more in that relationship. We know this. We've talked about this. Paul's making a point in this and all of the five aspects, and the point is this. We must prioritize. And that's a key word. We must prioritize the eternal over the temporal, and marriage is temporal. There is no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in eternity. In eternity, your spouse will not be your spouse, but he or she will be a fellow worshiper. 
And when we are there, you understand that there will be no sin. And so without sin, it's fair to say that your relationship and fellowship with your spouse will be even greater in eternity despite them not being your spouse anymore. The family bond at that time in eternity, worshiping together, will be stronger than the unity in marriage. It will be stronger than the unity in blood. It is pure, undefiled fellowship and worship. Let me make this practical. Your marriage should not in any way diminish or reduce your commitment to the Lord and His work. I'll say that again. Your marriage should not in any way diminish or reduce your commitment to the Lord and His work. And we understand the, the, the challenges of this. It's not just your relationship with your spouse, but what marriage entails. Children, mortgages, purchases, things like that. And in the wider context, you can see how this ties into Paul's preference that Christians remain single because marriage is a tug, a pull away from the Lord at times. It's challenging to keep the same level of commitment to God and service when you are married as you had when you are or were single. Now, if you choose to marry or have chosen to marry, you must keep in mind, as I've mentioned earlier and alluded to, your romantic love is not a forever love. There is a word in the Greek for romantic love, and it is not the word agape. In fact, that word is not found in the New Testament. It is a temporary love, romantic love, which will be replaced with an even greater eternal love, perfect love. And as wonderful as it is, marriage is transient. Your relationship with the Lord, however, is forever. It cannot be broken here on earth, and it will last for eternity. And with this, you could add any relationship not just with your spouse, but with your parents, with your children, with your best friend. We cannot let any relationship pull us away from our commitment to the Lord. You need to be careful then that you do not sacrifice worship in pursuit of marriage, and when you are married, not to sacrifice service and worship for your spouse's happiness or even a happy marriage. Paul goes on in verse 30 to give us a second and third temporal aspect of the world. He says, And those who weep as though, as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. These are two separate, obviously, but what he's talking about in both is emotions. Emotions. Weeping here is speaking of mourning. That's how the ESV translates it. Mourning is of this world because in eternity there will be no mourning. M-O-U-R-N. There will be no mourning in eternity because there will be nothing to mourn for. What do we as Christians primarily mourn over? Death and sin. Those will not exist in eternity. 
And Paul also says that we are not to be overly consumed with rejoicing because that too is only in this world. So mourning, we understand, is of this world, but no rejoicing in eternity? At least not the way that we know it. I mean, think about it. Hey, how you doing? Are you sad or are you joyful? We see it in this world as a contrast to mourning or a contrast to just being neutral. Joyfulness, rejoicing, is seen as a height of positive emotions in this world. But in eternity, there will be no contrast since our very existence will be a state of eternal joy. So to tell us to rejoice in eternity is like telling us to have blood in our veins while we are on earth. You don't have to say that. It's a given. If you exist, that is true of you. Just like blood in our veins now, rejoicing in eternity, it's a given for existence. It is existence. It just is. And that's what Paul is saying here. But more specifically, he is reminding us about the dangers of emotions. Paul is not calling for an end to mourning or joy on earth. These things are commanded in Scripture, especially in regard to the things of the Lord, mourning over sin, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weeping with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. What Paul is saying is that emotions have their place, but they must be kept in that place. Let me put it this way. Neither laughter nor tears are the final word in your life, uh, in your existence, in your decisions. Emotions are a servant to the Word of God and to biblical living. They are not to control it. We cannot let any human emotion become excessive or out of control. Despite what you may feel or how they have dictated your behavior in the past, your emotions are more controllable than you think. And I think a lot of times people think they can't control their emotions, and so they just sit back and they let their emotions control them. We cannot let that be. Again, the point is that these types of things are of the world, and they can distract us dissuade us, pull us away from our focus on what is eternal. They can keep us from what is truly important, or in their proper place, they can be an aid to helping us worship and focus on that which is eternal and truly important. And so, friends, let's not be so emotional that we are controlled by our emotions. Rather, we are to control our emotions Overly emotional people can often lack discernment because they feel something is right so strongly that for them it actually is right. And so they don't defer to what the Bible says is right. Emotions are temporary. And I don't mean in Paul's, how Paul is saying that emotions are temporary because the world is passing away, even in your life. Your great happiness or sadness, those are temporary. They're for a few moments, a few days. But the Bible is right all the time. 
It never changes. It is the rock. You know, being extra emotional can even sometimes lead to a greater commitment to ministry. But again, the problem is that once the emotion is gone, so is the ministry. Be careful. On the flip side, biblical love doesn't allow us to be emotionless, indifferent, or calloused. But biblical love also doesn't allow us to be controlled by our emotions or let them run amok. Being highly emotional is distinct from and actually often contrary to biblical agape love. Now, everyone is different. We all have certain things that pull on our heartstrings more than others, more than other people, things that happen to us or things that we witness in others that make us sad or joyful because of our own personal experiences and preferences. But how these things make you feel does not alter reality, and reality is that God is what matters and should be our greatest joy or our greatest mourning when we sin against Him. Let me give you another gauge as I did with the last point. Oftentimes, a personal success or a financial windfall, a promotion at work, even a physical purchase can bring us greater joy than a spiritual victory. Similarly, a friend's breakup or the loss of a job or an unmet expectation can bring us greater mourning than our own sin or the sin of the world around us. And sometimes in this day and age, even when we do find joy in spiritual victories or mourning over sin, we don't truly have the right perspective unless we somehow feed our emotions because we can post about that victory on social media. Such things should not be. When such things happen, then you know that your emotions are out of alignment with the Lord and what the Lord has designed for you. God gave you emotions. There's a way to use them. As Christians, we must be careful. Even when we give God the credit for good things that happen, we can be more controlled by our emotions than biblical discernment, spiritual priorities, or desire to glorify Emotions are temporal. Fourthly, we've seen our spouse, we've seen weeping and rejoicing, and now our possessions and purchases. Look at the end of verse 30. And those who buy as though they did not possess. Categorizing the first three as of this world might have been surprising to you, marriage, emotions, but this should not surprise you at all. We are all very aware that physical possessions and money are the epitome of that which is worldly. They cause the most problems in terms of our worldliness and our temptations and our rejection of ministry. Again, we have to buy things. We are expected to buy things. But Paul says we are not to buy things to possess them. What does that mean? It means all possessions are to be seen as what they are, things that the Lord has temporarily loaned us. Shopping is not life, and what you own does not, or at least should not, define you. 
we should not be consumed with our consuming. Friends, stop trying to keep up with everyone else or using your, your possessions to impress the world. Nothing we buy, no matter how expensive or even sentimental, can become our preoccupation. They are not to control you, just like marriage, just like emotions. For example, if I can be very practical, you want to buy something nice, a nice car. That's great. Praise God. Understand it's on loan from Him. But then when you are controlled by it, it's when you spend two hours every other week waxing, washing, detailing, time that you could otherwise be spending with your family or serving others. Or you spend hours online or at the mall buying, then matching, then cleaning, then taking care of, then studying the latest trends and color schemes for your clothing. Christians, it's too much. We don't have time for that. We are eternal people. Too many, too many Christians are more concerned about their bank accounts, their cars, their houses, and their clothes than their spirituality. As a pastor, how, how many marriages have I seen men try to fix by buying more stuff for their wives rather than leading, rebuking, encouraging, only to see that marriage go from bad to worse, but hey, at least she's happy now, and then we go back to the temporality of rejoicing. According to Scripture, there is nothing that gives you a greater glimpse of your heart than how you view money and possessions. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself, He says how you view possessions is directly connected to how great the darkness is in your heart or full of light. I want to move on because the last, the fifth one is closely connected to it in verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. This is taking full advantage of the world and all it has to offer. Using every circumstance to gain the greatest worldly advantage, whether it's a, a, what you would deem a happy marriage, whether it's a nicer house, whether it's possessions, whether it's happiness. Just using the world to the greatest worldly advantage and success. Pleasure is a really good word for what Paul's talking about here. Not necessarily immoral pleasures that we talked about earlier on uh, in 1 Corinthians, or even extravagant pleasures, but still worldly. When we live for these things, you know this, not just in watching the wealthy around us, but in your own life. When you live for these things, it's never enough. That super nice car in a couple years just doesn't seem nice anymore. There's new models. There's new companies. We always want more. More vacation. More time off. Earlier retirement. Nicer home. Nicer car. Nicer job. Nicer stuff. Also, we can enjoy this life 
while we neglect the things of the Lord. And what Paul is commanding us is to avoid becoming so absorbed with the world that it becomes everything to us. To put another way, to put it another way, for the Christian, to enjoy the world is one thing, to be enmeshed in it is sin. To enjoy the world is one thing, to be enmeshed in it is sin. Martin Luther warned us to, I quote, not sink too deeply into it, the world, either with love and desire or suffering and boredom, but should rather behave like guests on earth, using everything for a short time because of need. In other words, friends, do not let anything in the world occupy your full attention. To be sure, we are to use the world. Marriage, tears, joys, purchases. But we cannot let them interfere with our first love. Whenever you go too far with any of these things and the related things that maybe have popped up in your mind as we've gone through this passage, you let them reach into your spiritual life, your spiritual heart, and start chipping away at it, if not just strangle it completely. Use the things of the world, but understand that they are short-lived and are not of eternity just as this world is, just as your physical body is. Can I be honest with you? And I in no way believe that I am the prime example. But many of you know that I, I trade stocks as a, as a living, you could say, as a secular job. And over the years, I have had casual meetings with you guys, a lunch, a one-hour discipleship meeting that has literally cost me a lot of money, sometimes thousands of dollars. Because I left my trading desk to spend time with you, and that doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'm happy to do it. I chose to do it knowing that that could and probably would happen because I refuse to let my pursuit of riches or my secular job interfere with the things of the Lord, which more often than not means you. Don't hold on to the world. I'm often asked if I have any hobbies, and I'm always at a loss as to how to answer that question because it's asked of me as if I should have a hobby, as if I need a hobby. I really have no desire for a hobby. I have no time for a hobby because I fill my time with family, both physical and spiritual. I mean, I have some plants takes me out five minutes a week to water them. I have pets, but to be honest with you, even those keep dying because they're not a priority. Don't worry, they're not like dogs or anything. You know, the Gospels tell us that when Christ comes again, He will catch people off guard because they are distracted with eating and drinking Marrying, buying, selling, working, and building. Just like in the days of Noah. 
we know how it ended for them. They're so focused on the world and not on His return that they're shocked. And I would imagine some even slightly disappointed that He has come. You heard me say it before. We need to get out of the mindset, yes, Lord, come again, but just until I... But just let me get that... You know what helps us? Not be among those who will be surprised is what the focus of the whole passage is. The crux of the whole passage is the end of verse 31. The form of this world is passing away. This includes marriage. This includes pleasure. This includes food and property and clothing and emotions and everything else we've talked about. So as those who belong not to what is passing away, but to that which is eternal, focus, commit, pursue the things which are eternal. None of these five things that Paul's listed and none of the things that, that, that Jesus said people will be busy doing when He comes again are bad in and of themselves. Again, they are all used by God for His glory and have a place in the Christian life. You have to buy things or you will die. They're all part of His gracious provision. The problem comes when we forget or choose to forget what really matters, that we're not of this world, and that there's something bigger, better, and permanent that we are a part of, we belong to. It is us. And we are to focus on that thing, those things, especially because we are living in the final days of the world. You don't decide to cook a roast when the Uber is on its way to take you to the airport for your vacation. You're cleaning. You're putting things away. You're throwing away leftovers. You're done with the past so you can get in that car and go. Paul's not saying that the end is tomorrow or even in this century. Maybe not even in this millennium. A lot of theologians believe that Paul thought Christ would return in his lifetime with an understanding that even if he didn't, Paul had to be prepared. And that's the lesson for us. Because the end time, which we are in, has broken into the present and requires us to reevaluate all that we do in this world this world that is in its final chapter, its last legs, its end. I kind of laugh. I get it. But I kind of laugh. Three days ago, people finally were able to kick to the curb a year that they disliked, hoping for a better 2021. Politics, movements, riots, deaths, COVID. We're three days in and nothing has changed. Vaccine didn't overnight on New Year's Day have millions of more available and shipped to every hospital. COVID is not gone. Masks are still worn. Politics and politicians are still absolutely self-centered and selfish. I get it. 
This is a gracious gift of the Lord that we have ways to measure our days. But when the world looks at 2020 or 2021, and in 2022, I'm sure many will be saying the same thing because there's a good chance there'll be even more deaths this year from COVID. Done with 2021. Finally, 2022. What a horrible year. It's because that's all they have. They go day by day, week by week, year by year. They're lost in the trees and they don't even see or understand the forest. We get it. We don't live in this year. We live in an age and it is an age of the end. Christ has come and He is coming again. Live like it. I used to live in a country called Albania, as you know. And uh, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone that there's no direct flight from Tirana, Albania to the United States. Not a huge tourist spot. And so there would be at least one layover, sometimes another layover in the U.S. So we would fly from Albania uh, to, uh, depending on the airline, right, Italy or the U.K. or, or Austria. I remember this was before I was married, and so I was single, and already I was exhausted before the trip began. I won't even get into what the experience at the Albanian airport is like. It's uh, interesting. And so I got off of this plane, and I would imagine most of you have flown, right? You get off the plane onto the jetway, which is that moving tunnel that takes you into the airport. And generally in the U.S., at least I believe every airport I've ever flown into in the U.S., which is probably half a dozen different ones or so, you walk out and right as you walk out, there's the desk. There's the people waiting to get on the flight as soon as you get off. And right over there is a Starbucks and a sandwich shop or whatever. Not so in these European airports, especially where there are layovers, these kind of commuter airports. You get off the jetway, and there's nobody there except for the people leaving your plane. And I would get off the plane. I remember one time, and it happened multiple times. And already I'm tired, so I'm not thinking straight. I get off the plane. There's nobody there. There's a glass wall, and there's a ton of seats. They're empty because it's just uh, another gate, but there's no flight, and so it's empty. And so I'm standing there, and there's a tunnel this way, or a hallway this way, and there's a hallway this way, with no people, empty seats, no restaurants, nothing to tell me which path to take, except for one of those signs, those large screens. I don't know the official name where they list all the flights. It's really cool. In Europe, sometimes they still have those old school flipping signs. And there's only so many flights, let's say 10 flights that they can list at a time. Mine's not on there. And each, each flight, it'll tell you which gate to go to. And so I would know. Choose this way or this way. And I have no idea where they go. So I'm a little scared because I had enough experience at that time to know that if I pick the wrong way, it's not like the U.S. where it's just like, now you've got to walk a long way to get to the other gate. You can't get back. You're done. You have to go through immigration and all this stuff and maybe even need a visa to leave the airport and come back in. And so I waited. 
next 10 flights. Not on there. And I waited. Next 10 flights. Not on there. And I'm looking at the times. All of these flights are in 20 minutes, an hour. And then finally, back to the first screen. And so I'm sitting there. I have no idea what to do. Even the flight attendants and the pilot have already gone. There's nobody but me. And the problem was that my flight was too far in advance. So they didn't even bother putting it on the screen yet. And so I didn't know what to do. I was a foreigner. This wasn't my final destination. And there was no indication of what I was supposed to do. With the coming and birth of Jesus Christ, our flight is on the board. We know where to go. We know what to do. So stop standing at the end of the jetway enjoying that three-foot circle of space when all you have to do is follow the instructions, go down that path, and live a life that you are supposed to live. It's on the board. The end of days has begun. We need to live and do the way God has told us. Live in light of eternity. So whether it's marriage, whether it's weeping, whether it's rejoicing, whether it's buying, or any other usage of the world, your life as a Christian should never be identified with even the nearest and dearest of worldly experiences, regardless of how profound and legitimate they may be. Live for today only in a way that makes you live fully for the future. Recognize the times and have the right relationship with the temporal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us and allowing us to be born in a time where we're not wondering when the Messiah has come, but He has come. We know exactly the time that we are living in. We have been given so much instruction in how to live. And so help us, Father, to not be enmeshed with the things of the world, even things like our marriages and our emotions. Help us to use all of these things in a controlled manner, in a way that honors you, always keeping an eternal perspective. Lord, thank you for the privileges you have given us in our singleness, in our marriages, in our emotions, in our possessions, in our homes, our cars, our clothes, our toys, whatever it may be. But guard us against using these gifts in a way that dishonors you or pulls us away from our first love, our first priority. Help us to be people who live in light of eternity. Teach us how to do that in each and every one of our specific situations. Help us to fear you and not man. In Jesus' name.